Please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 9. And as you're doing that, I do want to make one quick announcement. We have small groups here at our church that meet in homes from September to May. Uh, They're called Flocks. And we have a sign-up sheet out on this table right outside this door. Uh, If you would like to be a part of these small groups starting in September, please sign up. Regardless of whether you have never been in one or if you have been in one every single year for the last 20 years. If you want to be in one this year, sign up. If you do not sign up, you will not be put in one. And then you will come to me and you will say, why am I not in one? I've been in one for 20 years. And I will say, did you sign up? And you will say no. (laughs) So, Please, if you would like to be in one, sign up out on that table. And one more note about that. I think there was, or I noticed there was some confusion because there are some options when you sign up your name as to whether you would like a Sunday flock small group or a weekday one. And then also there's an option of teaching or fellowship. Some people have been writing both under the teaching and fellowship um, Obviously, there's going to be fellowship in both, but if you could specify whether you would like a teaching flock or a fellowship flock, the teaching flocks will have Bible studies. The fellowship flocks will uh, just be uh, eating together, uh, enjoying fellowship in one another. So please make that uh, explicit when you sign up uh, for flocks. Okay, Exodus chapter 9. We continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus this morning. Um, Pastor Kevin mentioned this last week. I thought it was a very helpful exhortation. As we prepare to read God's Word and then uh, exposit and preach on this specific text, we do want to note that um, as I read Exodus chapter 9 to you, this is the most important part of the sermon. I'm going to read the Word of God. Uh, Then I will do my best to explain it. But as I am reading the words of Exodus chapter 9 to you, it comes with the authority uh, as if Jesus himself is standing here speaking this to us. So please note that God's holy, inspired, authoritative word uh, is perfect as we read it, and then I will imperfectly attempt to explain it. So after I read the text, as uh, Pastor Bob did, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And if you agree with me, please say thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel Shall die. And Yahweh set a time, saying, Tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. And the next day Yahweh did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, 
Not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt." Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and Yahweh sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, In all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that 
the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late, or they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to Yahweh, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go just as Yahweh had spoken through Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the Exodus story has been dramatized in film and television Some of the OGs in the room will remember or think of Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, released in 1956. Most recently, Christian Bale starred as Moses in 2014's Exodus, Gods and Kings. Us 90s kids will remember when uh, Tommy Pickles and the rest of the Rugrats acted out the exodus in the Passover episode. No amens on that one, huh? No 90s kids out there? Nestled somewhere in there, though, was 1998's animated feature, The Prince of Egypt. (laughs) No amen for the Rugrats, but The Prince of Egypt. All right. Mike, it's Mike. Well, like many other uh, animated Films. The Prince of Egypt is a musical, or, you know, it's got songs and it's partially a musical. One of the songs is entitled The Plagues. And the scene that features this song in The Prince of Egypt begins with the second plague of frogs uh, that Pastor Kevin preached on last week. And it goes all the way through the ninth plague, which is darkness which Pastor Kevin will preach on next week, and everything in between. The song is primarily about Moses' relationship with Pharaoh, uh, which is more speculation than it is biblical. Um, Not to mention that in the movie The Prince of Egypt, Moses looks about 35. He doesn't look 80. So uh, historical accuracy, biblical accuracy was not at a premium for this. But in the song, Pharaoh and Moses are singing to each other while frogs are crawling into people's beds and, um, you know, fire is falling from the sky and everyone, everybody's in the corner looking scared. But because the film is made for children, uh, the depiction of the plagues is mild at best. Um, in reality, though, it's hard to overstate the social, economic, religious, 
and personal destruction that Yahweh was raining down on the Egyptian culture. A true depiction of the plagues would look more like a horror movie than it would look like a fun cartoon. So when we think about these plagues, as we've been preaching through these last several weeks, if we are imagining the Prince of Egypt or the Rugrats or VeggieTales or Sunday School flannel graphs, to do so is to neuter this narrative. It is far more destructive. It is far more painful. Through the plagues, the Egyptian economy is collapsing. The religious system is being decimated. And now people are starting to die. With each of these plagues or strikes, as Pastor Kevin enlightened us last week, Yahweh is judging the idols of Egypt. He is striking Egypt for their idolatry and their oppression of the Hebrew people. Another way to say that is that the Egyptians have not loved God and they have not loved their neighbor. And they are being judged. In Exodus chapter 9, we just read of the fifth, sixth, and seventh plagues. Uh, and, And last week, you may remember that Pastor Kevin mentioned four themes that can be traced all throughout these ten plagues or strikes. The first theme is Moses called the Pharaoh to let God's people go. The second theme is that through this judgment, God will be known. They will know God. The third theme is Pharaoh's hard heart. And the fourth theme is that these are signs and wonders. These are not merely miracles, but these are signs. They are pointing us to something or namely someone. And once again, we see that because of their idolatry and oppression, Egypt, like all of the other kingdoms in the history of the world, is a kingdom of death. Their idolatry yields death. The kingdom of Christ is the only kingdom that is a kingdom of life. So let's start with the fifth plague in verses 1 through 7. Moses once again comes to Pharaoh because you remember at the end of chapter 8, you can look one verse up in verse 32, but, uh, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go, right? Uh, same story over and over again. Pharaoh may not be singing the plague song with Moses and the prince of Egypt, but it seems like he's singing some third eye blind. I'll never let you go. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. And the rest of you are going to have that song stuck in your head now. So you're welcome. The fifth plague is technically the only plague. That's why it was so helpful last week when Pastor Kevin explained that the Jewish historians refer to these plagues as strikes, that Yahweh is striking Egypt in judgment because the fifth strike is the only technical plague. 
the plague that comes to the livestock. Yahweh sends a plague that kills all of the Egyptian livestock. One truth that the fifth plague reveals is that Yahweh is sovereign over all of the animals on earth. Yahweh slaughters the Egyptian livestock and he preserves the Hebrew livestock. This is an apologetic against those who may try to argue that these Egyptian plagues or strikes were really just natural phenomena and that uh, Christians have tried to explain them using the miraculous. If that were true, uh, there's no way that the Egyptian livestock would all die from a plague while the Hebrew livestock doesn't die. It's very clear that Yahweh is uh, he's electing the Jewish livestock unto life as he's reprobating the Egyptian livestock unto death. Genesis 1 tells us that God created all of the animals that are in the world. In Psalm 50, verse 10, Yahweh says, For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. The Egyptians may be worshiping their livestock, but God created them, and he will do with them as he pleases. And the Egyptians did worship their livestock. The ancient Egyptians had several gods or idols that were imaged by livestock. Hather was the goddess of love and protection, and she was pictured by a woman's body with a cow head. Super flattering. Apis was the bull god, and he was a symbol of fertility. Osiris uh, was associated with fertility, agriculture, and, among other things, resurrection. So in this fifth strike, Yahweh is once again revealing to the Egyptians that their idolatry yields death. If you worship idols, if you worship false gods, that road is leading you to death. This has proved true for all of human history. The variety of idolatry that we've seen in the history of the world always results in the same destination. You will surely die. Yahweh's destruction of the Egyptian livestock and his preservation of the Hebrew livestock, his protection of the Hebrew area called Goshen during the seventh plague of hail, where he didn't protect the Egyptian land, both of these things foreshadow the coming final judgment. The Hebrew animals are saved because God pours out his grace on his people and God destroys the Egyptian livestock because the Egyptians do not have faith in him. In Matthew chapter 25, Christ tells us of the final judgment where he describes believers as sheep and unbelievers as goats. The goats inherit eternal punishment and the sheep inherit eternal life in the kingdom of Christ. What does this parable mean? What is it describing? Those who believe the gospel will live forever in the new earth with Jesus, 
those who reject the gospel will receive eternal conscious punishment in a place called hell. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it is only good news because there is bad news. And if you were in our class this morning with Pastor Kevin teaching on total depravity, you are, were reminded once again of the bad news. The bad news is that God is your holy creator and that you have rebelled against him in sin. Because you're a sinner, you deserve God's holy wrath. Pastor Brett read earlier from the Nicene Creed, which says that Jesus Christ is of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus lived without sin. Jesus died on a Roman cross bearing God's wrath for the sins of his people. He was buried and on the third day he resurrected from the dead, proving that he is indeed the Christ. He is indeed the promised one. And proving also that God had accepted his righteous life and his substitutionary death. Now, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, the Holy Spirit changes people's hearts so that they can repent and believe in Jesus Christ. To repent means to turn from your sin. And then faith in Christ entails three facets, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge refers to all of the facts about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. I briefly just explained them to you, who Christ is, where he came from, what he came to do. And so we must have that knowledge. There is no one in the history of the world who has been saved apart from the knowledge of the promises of God realized in Jesus Christ. But that knowledge is not enough you must also assent to the validity of that truth claim. Not only do I know what you say about Jesus and what he did, but I believe it's true. I think that actually happened. Even that assent falls short, though, because you must also transfer your trust to Christ alone. You must be convinced to the point where there's, if you were to die and, and you were to you know, be standing at the precipice of heaven and hell and you were to be asked by God or you know, maybe if you got a little Roman Catholic flavor, you say St. Peter, but whoever's standing there is going to ask you, you know, by what merit, what, why, how are you coming here? How are you coming to heaven? How can I let you in to this perfect and holy place? You're, you're a sinner. Your only answer is that Christ lived sinless in your place and that Christ died as a substitute in your place and you're trusting in him and that's all you've got. Like a deer who comes to the stream with nothing to offer but to say, if I don't drink of you, I will die. This is how we come to Christ. Transfer your trust to Christ alone. 
repentance and faith there, the two-sided coin, is more than mere remorse for sin. We see a clear biblical example of this concept in Pharaoh, right? We read it from, from Exodus 9 that Pharaoh says, I have sinned, I sinned again. He acknowledges that he's a sinner. In verse 27, this time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. So Pharaoh is acknowledging that he's wrong, that he's falling short of the glory of the Lord. But he is not trusting in the Lord. He has remorse for sin, but he does not have genuine repentance. Verse 34 says that once the hail ended, Pharaoh sinned again and hardened his heart. Pharaoh did not understand repentance. He had remorse for the damage that his sin was causing to the Egyptian economy, to the Egyptian occult, to the Egyptian people. But Pharaoh did not want to turn from his sin. He just felt bad about what his sin was doing. Repentance can only genuinely happen when the Holy Spirit changes your heart and you turn from your sin as you transfer your trust to Christ. Repentance is not the preparation for regeneration. Repentance is the result of regeneration. God changes your heart and then you simultaneously repent and believe. Turn away from your sin as you're turning towards Christ. Pharaoh's heart had not been changed. That's the problem. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. We need a new heart. This is a consistent theme throughout the Exodus narrative with Pharaoh. Over and over again, Scripture tells us that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Both are true. In verse 14, the text says, Yahweh is saying this to Pharaoh. He says, I will send my plagues on you yourself. Notice if you have an ESV translation in verse 14. Uh, no, is it verse 14? Yeah, verse 14. I will send my plagues on you yourself. See that footnote number one? If you look down, the, the Hebrew literally says, I will send my plagues on your heart after he keeps hardening his heart. Verse 21 says, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh. The Hebrew literally reads, whoever did not set his heart on the word of Yahweh. Our most fundamental problem is that our heart is spiritually dead and it needs resurrection. Scripture tells us that we are born with a heart of stone and that we need a heart of flesh. We need a spiritual heart transplant, as Joseph Vanderhurst reminded us last month at our men's breakfast. And this only happens when the Holy Spirit works regeneration in our hearts. And that opens our eyes so that we can then repent and believe. Repentance, moving forward then, is not a one-time act, but it is a lifelong act. Justification, 
is a one-time act whereby we are declared righteous because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Repentance is lifelong. It is perpetual. That's why every week here at Christ Community Church, we practice a time of corporate confession and pardon. Pastor Andrew led us in it earlier. We are people who continue to sin even after we're saved, so we must be people who continue to repent even after we're saved. We do it every week together here at church, and we must be confessing and repenting every day individually on our own. Those who trust in Jesus alone, everything we just described, regeneration, working, repentance, and faith, they are the sheep of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, all who have changed hearts. They are the ones who inherit eternal life. Those who reject Christ are the goats, and they inherit eternal punishment. So right now we must pause and ask, have you transferred your trust to Christ? Have you repented and believed? Are you harboring sin today? Are you hardening your heart? Repent. Turn from your sin and look to Christ. One theologian said, I can't remember who it was, he said, when you're trying to cover your sin, there's nothing more that Jesus wants to do than expose it. And if you will expose your sin, there's nothing more that Jesus wants to do than cover it. Another way to say that we said earlier is if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you will not repent, if you will not believe, you will face Christ in judgment on the last day and you will be condemned to eternal conscious punishment in a place called hell forever. Take Christ by faith this morning because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the sixth plague, starting in verse 8, or strike, if you will, is boils. Yahweh commands Moses now to take handfuls of soot from the kiln and to throw them in the air. The result then is that boils start breaking out into sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Even the magicians can no longer stand before Moses because of their boils. Pharaoh thought he could keep up with Yahweh through his magicians, but Yahweh just made the magicians tap out. They're all done. Once again, the Egyptians have or had several gods or idols that were associated with health. Sekhmet was the goddess over disease. Sunu was the pestilence god. And Isis was a healing goddess. But where are these gods when all the boils break out on the Egyptians? They are nowhere to be found as Yahweh once again humiliates the Egyptian pantheon. These boils are a tangible parable for us, revealing that idolatry, 
oppression, and sin are like a disease. Like buzz to Kevin, you're such a disease. It's a disease that only Christ can heal. In our call to worship, Pastor Bob read from uh, one of many occasions in the Gospels where uh, Christ is healing the sick. And Matthew even notes that Isaiah prophesied that this would happen, that when the world be, was began to ma- be made new, that uh, disease would be eradicated. And so then Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene and he's healing the sick. And he's not doing it uh, merely to alleviate suffering. He is alleviating suffering. But there is a, a deeper parable. There is a bigger picture that Jesus is giving us. He's declaring to us that the kingdom of God has arrived. He's telling us, remember what Isaiah wrote about? It's now. This is what I'm doing. Watch as I heal the sick. Uh, as part of our church-wide summer Bible reading Um, plan. We started the book of Acts this past week. And in the book of Acts, the apostles do the same thing as Jesus, right? I mean, Peter's walking through the crowd, and just like Christ, it says people were reaching out to grab the hem of his garment so that they might be healed. And so Jesus is authenticating the ministry of the apostles, a ministry that existed uh, in the first century that has not existed since, uh, authenticating the message of Christ, But they're saying what Jesus did, we're continuing to do, right? This isn't over because Jesus went to heaven. And so healing of the sick is an announcement that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Because sickness is a result of sin, Pastor Zach reminded us of that in Bible class, it's not just a result of sin, though, it's also a picture of sin. It's a parable of sin. Jesus is revealing that he has come to heal us from our greatest infirmity, to save us from our sin. Now, that's not to say that we should not pray for those who are suffering with sickness and disease. We certainly should. Many of you have shared with me how you've been praying for my mother for these last six months, and um, our family is so grateful for that. We prayed uh, for Renee Ross in her sickness. Uh, We prayed for Jeff Bowman in his sickness. We prayed for uh, Christian Owens recently as he's been struggling in sickness. And the list goes on and on because that's what we should do. But, okay, that's my preface to say, I'm not saying don't pray for sick people. Always pray for sick people. But let us not fall into the trap of thinking that physical healing is someone's greatest need. It is not. The greatest need of every individual who has ever lived is to be right with God by receiving forgiveness of sins in Christ alone. And so as the boils show us the idolatry of the Egyptians that lead to death, we see that Jesus comes and he takes our sin on himself. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The third plague we see this morning in verses 13 through 35 is the seventh plague or strike, which is hail, thunder, rain, and fire falling from the sky. Newt was the 
uh, Egyptian sky goddess. And uh, the Egyptians also used fire in their um, idolatrous worship. As part of their worship, fire and water were a big part of their uh, worship rituals. The Egyptians were also, um, apparently, I read this, I'm not an expert on Egyptian history, but apparently the Egyptians were fascinated with rain because it didn't rain often in Egypt. And so when it did rain, it was something that would captivate the people, and they would try to study it as much as they could. And they would use, like I said, water and fire in their worship of idols, of this uh, sky goddess, Newt. So in the seventh plague, what Yahweh is doing is he's using their idols against them. Oh, you want to worship fire? You want to worship water? You want to worship the sky? Okay, let it rain. And it does. Rain, hail, the big, you know, biggest hail, it says, since Egypt was even a nation. The largest hail that they'd ever seen. And the Egyptians die. This is the first plague where real people are dying. And they're dying by means of the idols that they're worshiping. Idolatry yields death. Idolatry is always conceived in sin, and it's always a stillborn birth. It is death. It seems, may seem fun for a season, but it always yields death. This was true for the Egyptians, and it is still true for us today. And you're thinking, we don't worship idols. You know, you're like, you're like, I've seen that episode of the Brady Bunch where they go to Hawaii and the little tiki thing is cursing their vacation. We don't do that. That's silly. That's something uneducated people do. That's something ancient people do. That's something third world countries do. We are way too smart. We are way too sophisticated. We are way too technologically and scientifically advanced to participate in idolatry. Well, we may not be tempted to worship the same exact idols that the ancient Egyptians did, but do not be fooled by what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, that we're smarter just because we're here now. Our modern Western culture worships idols. Mostly, we're tempted even as Adam in the garden, we're tempted to worship ourselves. This is the biggest modern Western idol. Tim Keller has a very helpful book on this topic called Counterfeit Gods, if you're interested to read more. But that idolatry of self manifests itself in different ways, doesn't it? It can manifest itself through politics, through money, sex, power, education, fame, things like this. We make idols of our own desires and of our own autonomy. So whatever makes us feel the most important, whatever makes us feel the most powerful, whatever makes us feel the most secure or the most loved or the most comfortable, as we worship ourselves, these become our good works to appease the deity of self. An idol is anything other than Christ that you think you cannot live without. 
So Tim Keller gives us a good test to use on ourselves, and please do it now. If you look at your life and you look at anything in your life other than Jesus, and you say, life is not worth living without this, then it is an idol. And idolatry yields death. Life is not worth living unless I have X amount in the bank. My life would not be worth living unless I lived in this neighborhood or drove this car or had this job or married this person or had these kids or didn't have kids or I got this degree. If there's anything in our lives that we say our life is not worth living without this thing, then it is an idol. Jesus alone can satisfy the longings that God gave us when he created us. And I don't want to be flippant about this because I understand there are widows and widowers in the room right now. And there are parents who have lost children. But they can't be our Jesus. They cannot be our functional saviors. They weren't made to carry that burden. So it may not be ancient statues that our hearts are drawn to, It can even be good things. It can even be godly things. How many pastors do we know that make an idol of ministry? Anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. It is in Jesus Christ, once again, that we see the great reversal of the seventh plague. Because not only did Pastor Bob read about Christ healing the sick in our call to worship, but he also read about Christ calming the storm. Yahweh brings the storm of judgment in Egypt, but hundreds of years later, Christ comes and Christ calms the storm of God's wrath. This reveals two truths to us about Jesus. Number one, namely that Jesus Christ is sovereign God. He does hold authority over nature. Jesus tells the storm to be quiet and the storm obeys. There's no such thing as mother nature. Christ is sovereign Lord over nature. The second thing it reveals to us about Christ is that Jesus has come, most ultimately, to calm the storm of God's wrath for those who believe. It hailed in Egypt, but not in Goshen, where the Hebrews lived. God shows his grace and mercy to his people, and God pours out his wrath on those who reject his son. This is what Christ has come to accomplish on the cross. Jesus was and is our penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus atones for our sins. He pays for our sins by being a substitute for his people paying the penalty. Penal substitutionary atonement. 
Oftentimes here at church, we sing on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. In this text, Yahweh also tells us the purpose of the plagues, or should I say he reminds us again, because he's been telling us the whole time. The purpose of the plagues is the same purpose for the death of Christ. It's the same purpose for all of human history. The Latin phrase is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Yahweh declares that he is continuing the plagues for the fame of his name. Yesterday at men's breakfast, Drew McGuire taught on evangelism and he encouraged us to make Jesus famous here in Southeast Michigan. Yahweh's been making, God's been making himself famous for all of human history. This is the purpose for which the world was created. The creation of the world was not random, not random regeneration, but the creation of a personal God in order to glorify himself among his creatures, his glory, the fame of his name. In verse 14, God tells us that he is striking Egypt so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 16 says, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And the word of the Lord did not return void, did it? By the time that Joshua and the Israelites arrive in Jericho some 40 years later, the inhabitants of the land are still talking about what Yahweh did to the Egyptians. We're still talking about it this morning. The New Testament reveals to us that the name of God is finally and fully exalted in the name of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 9-11 says this, God has highly exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Later, the Apostle Peter will condemn Israel, the ones who are being saved in the Exodus account, when he declares this in Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. He healed a man. We just talked about that earlier. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, or that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God has revealed and glorified his name finally and fully in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only through his name that God offers salvation. 
We don't want to be so comfortable with the Exodus narrative, sterilizing it through cartoons or Sunday school flannel graphs, because the Egyptian plagues is a gruesome scene. Economic upheaval, religious system decimated, people dying. That's because Egypt was a kingdom of death. And their idolatry and their oppression lead to death. But the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of life. Jesus is sovereign God. He is sovereign over the animals. He's sovereign over disease. He's sovereign over nature. And Jesus is the one who came to reverse the curse. He lived. He died. He was resurrected. As the Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation. Do not harden your heart. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask now that your spirit would make your word effective in the hearts of every person here in the room. Father, for those who have not repented and believed, we ask that your Holy Spirit would raise their heart from the dead, that your Holy Spirit would take their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh so that they would see the beauty of King Jesus, who he is and what he did, and that they would repent of their sin and they would transfer their trust to Christ alone and that they would be saved. Father, we pray for your people that we would be comforted, convicted, and encouraged in the gospel this morning. Father, help us to tear down the idols that are so readily produced in the factory of our hearts. Father, make us a people who are continually repenting, who are continually looking to King Jesus, who aren't trying to build our own individualistic kingdoms and idols, Father, but that we are those who have taken up our cross and are following King Jesus. Even now as we come to the Eucharist, we ask, Father, that our hearts would rejoice in the good news of the gospel. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Father, give us a thankful disposition. We ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.